Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. It's time for Women Who Code Conversations, a segment to hear from top technology professionals sitting down with a Women Who Code member to discuss real-world experiences in the industry, what they've learned over the course of their career, and what they think is coming next for tech. Today, we have another special edition of the podcast for Black History Month, featuring Women Who Code's Chief Legal Officer and brand strategist, Kim Bennett, and Women Who Code software engineer, Timotope Adaran. Hi, I'm Kim Bennett, Chief Legal Officer and brand strategist here at Women Who Code. Hi, I'm Timotope Adedira. I'm a software engineer at Women Who Code. And we're celebrating Women Who Code Turns 10 and Black History Month. Yeah, so excited to be celebrating it and excited to be joined by you, Temi, to have a conversation about our journey. So um, I guess I'd first love to, you know, get to know why and what made you become an engineer and a little bit about your trajectory and becoming one um, in Nigeria. Yeah, sure. Um, that's a really, really good um, um, question to ask because um, <clears throat> my career journey is one that has really inspired so many women here in Nigeria to venture into tech. Um, interestingly, because I didn't study engineering or any computer-related courses. And here I'm doing what I love, building software for human who code. So I started my journey, you know, um, working as a business development executive with a real estate firm here in Nigeria, when I read a blog post about two kids who learned how to code online and in about five years of learning, they had built a web browser with which they started a tech company. And that got me really inspired. <laughs> you know, I, I, the blog where, they, where I read about the kids mentioned the website they started learning from. Um, I think it's called code, yeah, codeacademy.com actually. You know, I clicked on it at the time, very curious about how you know, they could learn engineer um, you know, how to, how to learn how to code online because that was something that one needed to go to school to learn you know, and all of that. So seeing kids actually learn it you know, online got me inspired to learn something new and then my journey started. Meanwhile, sorry about the noise in my background. I'm a mom and um, that's one of the <laughs> interesting parts of working remotely from home. Yeah, as I was saying, right, um, I started learning um, HTML and CSS um, on Code Academy after I, I, I learned about it from the kids who I started learning to code from there and at Beauty web, web browser. And, you know, their mom was able to start a company for them. And I, at the time, I was looking for something new to do, you know, and this seemed like an interesting um, venture right, to, 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 to go into. So I started learning um, HTML and CSS and about a week I was done and I was like, if this is really what software engineering is about, then I think I could really do this, right? Um, <laughs> but little did I know that that was barely the tip of the iceberg, right? I, I, was, I was enjoying the learning anyway, so I continued. 
you know, few weeks um, before I stumbled on Code Academy um, at the real estate firm where I was working because I was a go-to person um, for any tech-related challenges. You know, um, one of my colleagues had sent me a link um, to consider joining an all-female coding bootcamp with Angela at the time. You know, um, I'd said no at the time because I, I I didn't know what coding was all about. So I, I and I didn't think it was something I could learn. Um, Aside going to school, right? So I, I totally said no to them. But after going through that HTML and CSS course on Code Academy, and even, I mean, of course, in my naivety, I assumed maybe that was majorly what software engineering was about. So I decided to you know, consider um, pursuing the web development full time. And then I went ahead to apply for the, I clicked on the link that shared for the off meal boot camp with Andela, and I applied for it. You know, I think myself. Not, I mean, not looking back, I think my um, journey was was a, is an interesting one because at first it seemed like I stumbled on it, and then um, a lot of things, you know, came on the way that you know helped me to further increase my interest in it. Um, like I said, after I applied for the bootcamp, you know, I, I really, you know, decided that okay. Um, I mean, I found out at the time that Angela was. Um, and then I was hiring smart Nigerians, you know, was Africans actually. At the time, it was Nigeria and Kenya. And they were going to be putting, you know, this really, they're hiring top 1% um, smart individuals and, you know, putting us through guided learning in, to make us, you know, even better, um, like a better software engineer. So learning software and also learning all the other soft skills required to learn. And after that learning, we get placed, you know, to work with software teams, mostly in the U.S. Because Andela HQ was in the U.S. at the time, and I thought, okay, this 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 is a really really um, interesting opportunity because not only do I get paid while learning, which means I could leave the real estate firm I was working at and you know really possibly full time because I I would get paid to to learn and also can pursue this as a full time you know endeavor. So I, I, I became even more intentional in my quest for knowledge. And I, I remember I would come home from the real estate um, job from the night five at the time, and I would study. I would code in the evenings till very late in the night, up till 2 a.m. Because I didn't have to, um, my, my resumption time every morning was 9 a.m. So I would code till very, in fact, sometimes I would literally, you know, push myself to go to sleep because I was really enjoying the learnings. And, and I thought to myself, it's, it, this was, if this is what I'm going to be doing full time now, I think this could be really interesting. Anyway, <laughs> um, those were the, the more basic, um, of course. I mean, engineers understand that HTML and CSS is just, it's just, it's just really the start. Maybe I, I don't even know if to say it's even up to the start. But anyway, I, 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 I kept on learning, um, and you know, kept on, I mean, trying to get into pursuing this new career. And at the time, right, I later got into Angela after trying three times, right? I, at, at first, at the time when I just applied, you know, I just started learning HTML and CSS, and then I realized, I think he also helped me understand how much more I needed to learn to further pursue this as a career. And I kept trying at each time, even when I didn't, you know, when I almost made it through and I still didn't, I kept trying. And I think that experience is an interesting one that really tested my commitment and youth to really pursuing this this new fun passion of mine as a career, you know, at, at, at each stage, I kept learning and learning and getting better. And 
here I am now, um, when Angela, I joined Women Code and I'm now a software engineer with Women Code. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, I, I, I love hearing also just like the, like you said, the journey of you going from like deciding, well, let me see what it's like. I saw children, some kids doing it. Well, maybe I can to then getting the confidence to go after things that maybe you thought you shouldn't do it and you kept pursuing it and like that passion and love is driving you. And I think a lot of times when we're on these journeys, sometimes we go away from our passions and our drives, but you just really leaned into it. And, um, and now, like you said, now you're, now you're here doing something you love that you could have stayed up all night doing, working two jobs doing, and instead now this could be your focus. And so I really, I really yeah. love that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I Great. All right. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, the, the differences from working, you know, remotely. So, I mean, we're in this world where you work remotely now because we're all experiencing this pandemic still, but, you know, but remote was a part of what you decided to do anyway. Um, I'd love to hear about, you know, a little bit more about working remote and maybe also just about the differences about working in Africa versus working, you know, for a company head, head queued in, in United States that also is an international, has an international presence. So I'd love to get some of your experiences around that too. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a really um, um, good question. Majorly um, because, you know, the Andela model, the company I used to, I started working with, you know, that got me into that. I started working as a software engineer with, um, had the, like they, they were doing the remote model even before like remote became a thing, right? And you know, at the time, I think I think it was really helpful to me having that background because I would um, we were we were put through some guided learnings, you know, to help like really learn the skills that are required for remote work. For example, um, a lot of times one needs to really over communicate because you are not in the same physical space with. Um, with the team so you're required to communicate as often as you know necessary you know and also learn to collaborate and also learning to use you know the digital tools that help to you know collaborate easily for example you know um some of these platforms the meeting platforms where all of this um works now for me living in africa and working with mostly um us companies mostly actually you know the time zone has always been so, such that it literally changed my um, my work time frame in an interesting way that I really love. You know, um, I used to love working. I still love working very late in night anyway. And because um, my own afternoon time is the morning time, you know, um, with the team, I get to probably sleep into the mornings, then start my day a little late, and then actually start working a bit in the afternoon, and then work late into the night. Um, sometimes I, you know, stop working around 8 p.m. my time, you know, get to do other things like, of course, work-life balance, you know, attend to family, and then sometimes get back to work again, maybe sometimes around 10, 11, and then work a bit into life. It was something I, I loved doing, so it was an easy um, way to help me find balance. And of course, because I also understood that I, I do, you know, like I do more work very little in the time in the, in the night when everywhere is, you know, quiet and all of that. So. I, I was able to structure, um, you know, more important, important, deep, meaningful work around that time when, you know, there are no disturbance and all of that. And of course, as a mom, like I said, there are times when, you know, um, my kid needs some attention while working. So it's, yeah. So it's something I've been able to find the balance, you know, too. And of course, working um, remotely um, here, I mean, I kind of begin to 
overemphasize the, the 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 benefits of it. Of course, that is only challenges, but it has its benefits as to also being able to attend to family, you know, being there when you know, family, especially as a, as a mom, basically. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, I mean, I think that's um, like, again, similar themes about really kind of designing the life that works with you. Like you said, you worked into the nighttime when you were coding and now you are able to find the right work structure for you that aligns with some of the, you know, the company that you're working with, but also allows for you to, to have that. I, I don't always love the word balance. I love more like flow or integration because I don't think balance is a thing, but I love I love that um, that you said that. I don't know. Similar for me, I will say, in my journey, um, <clears throat> it was like it, it wasn't a traditional journey into the law either, right? Like, I I didn't actually desire to go to law school, and then I found myself in law school. Um, I was in law school as a JD PhD student studying both law and psychology, and I thought I was probably going to lean more psychology, but then I ended up staying in the law, leaving my psych program, my PhD program, and just continue to kind of grow in that space. And I think where a lot of us are in the midst of this pandemic, and when well, a lot of us, we all are, um, in the midst of this pandemic, which was really changing for, for me at the time when I came out of law school, which I cannot believe it's 15 years ago, but it's, I'm in my 15th year of practicing. Um, we were right before the recession happened in the United States, which then had the global um, impact as well. And so like that same kind of change and, um, for me, moving into tech wasn't wasn't where I started, right? Going to law wasn't where I started, but I always liked technology like you. I, I tested a ton, a ton of tech and then wanting to be a lawyer that operated differently, that practiced differently. Um, technology was was a, a provided the ability to do that. And so mm -hmm. after market crashed and after I, um, you know, where I'm like around 2010 time, I was thinking, well, how do I grow a practice, grow and grow in my career and take a hold of things when sometimes opportunities weren't always there. And technology really was like a foundational part of that. And so, um, yeah, I grew into, I would say the tech space through tech, testing tech, through loving tech, through wanting to like, see how I can leverage tech to allow for me to live the life I wanted while still being able to move the legal industry in ways that I think it needed to move. So I think those are like, we have a lot of similarities in terms of like following things yeah, that interest us, maybe not going down the path that people always expect, um, but then, you know, getting here eventually. Interesting. So. You know, that, that's an interesting question because I was going to, I think, I think you pretty much answered a bit of that. I was, I was actually going to ask about, you know, what drew you to tech and what um, inspired you to start your own um, law tech company. Um, but yeah, I think I think you just want to share more about that. Like what really sure. like inspired you to start the tech company? Yeah, I will say so. I became a co-founder of a tech company officially um, beginning of 2021. And um, we were talking in, in conversations a little bit before that. But um, I had a thought in the behind, you know, in the back of my head, like, what if I became a tech co-founder? What would that look like? You know, it just was a thought. It wasn't like maybe I don't I don't code. Um, I can I can be a little dangerous with things, right? But definitely, I would never say I code. But I'm, I'm I'm dangerous, right? I built my own website, which again, right? <laughs> Asterisks. I built, meaning I was on Squarespace. So I'm not trying to take away from all the amazing work that um, <laughs> others do, right? But like, you know, I was able to do little things. I was able to do, you know, I I grew up in the era where we were, you know, where computers were still just like a new thing, and so I learned, you know, basics. So, um, but 
in my legal career, one of the things that was really important to me was not to do law like others do law. Law is really very reactive. I wanted to be very proactive. And so in my industry, I um, am one of the leaders in subscription legal services, which is um, kind of what it sounds like, right? We, we're, we're, we're in tech, we see SaaS companies, we see you know the Netflix of the world, we see all things that are subscription and service-based. It really wasn't a thing and in legal, definitely not a thing. So in 2010, around that time when I was kind of thinking through how do I grow my career and I was doing traditional way of doing law, I thought, mm, this doesn't work. And I said, there had to be a better way. And so from that point, I started doing subscription legal services. Didn't have that name, but that's basically what I was doing. And um, fast forward, I always thought, well, what would it look like if I could do this via a tech platform? Because a lot of the basis of subscriptions is proactive services, but very process-driven, leveraging technology so that you can you know, provide value at scale. And, and so I've always done it with the technology that was there. There was never like a quite right one. Um, and then I was approached to become a co-founder at the end of 2020. And then 2021, I became a co-founder. And essentially, it's basically what I've been doing in practice now in a tech platform. And so I thought about what it could look like. And that's what got me there. And now it's, you know, same idea, like realizing your vision, you know, or thinking through what, what something could be and, and not being 100% sure, but following the path and letting, um, letting your experiences drive you and letting your passions drive you and your commitment to the things that really matter to you. So I think that's what got me there. And it's really just the tech, not just, but it is a tech version of what I do in my practice so that other lawyers right now, but even beyond that, service-based professionals really can scale through eliminating hourly billing. So that's long, long answer, but <laughs> there, that's it. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting answer because, I mean, like you said, you seem to have a lot of um, similarities, right? Because I also got into tech because um, in a quest to be more and to do more, right? I mean, reading the story about those kids who, you know, through learning to, um, to code online, started something new and different. I wanted to do that. You know, I wanted to do that. I wanted, and, 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 and I think tech is one thing that also that gives that power to do and be anything you want to be. So it was just an easy and interesting choice, you know. Um, and, and I'm glad that, you know, through tech, you, you've also been able to, you know, be able to explore that, you know, part of your vision and your dream. And yeah, that's that's an interesting thing to know. Um, yeah. Do you want to share? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to share about the um, cultural similarities and differences between some of the industries you've worked with? Yeah, I will say, um, well, like, I mean, there's there's similarities in that, you know, um, companies go through similar growth trajectories. Um, they, if you're serving clients, I think service-based, you, you see a lot of similarities, but I would say like, if I think about legal and technology, this it's just like in tech and legal, they're, they're, uh, as women grow inside of legal, you see a lot of women leave, right? Most lawyers or a good percentage, like half of lawyers that go into law school, people go into law school are lawyers. But as you look at the growth, as you look at who are running the firms or who are the, the GCs or the chief legal officers or are in leadership positions across um, the legal industry, you see less and less women, you see less and less, you know, uh, black and indigenous people of color. It, it's just those same inherent um, issues that you see in technology appear in the law. And interestingly enough, in the intersection of legal tech is where my platform sits, which is like law and technology, it's amplified, right? So in terms of the work that we all need to do in terms of like the similarities, the, the same reasons that people leave tech and you know, women leave tech 
um, black indigenous people of color leave tech is because of probably the same reasons they're leaving legal and in the same way of wanting to provide um, better ways of showing up how you can grow and learn and lead in these industries. I, I see that as a lot of the same. And I think culturally, you know, some of the similarities and just like what the experiences are. I think um, legal hasn't done a great job of um, bringing every voice to the table. I always say that like they don't, they, the legal industry centers lawyers, which is totally wrong. It should be centering the community in which it supports. And so trying to, you know, I think tech is an interesting, is in an interesting space where it can center too much around tech and not the community it supports. And we've seen a little bit of that over the years, right? And so I think there are a lot of these similarities and there's a lot of opportunity um, through what we, what we do daily at Women Who Code, right? To, um, to, push, to push our industries separately and, to, and together to just do better, so. So yeah. I want to I want to I want to ask you a question because I think thinking about how your journey to coming into becoming an engineer and then others that might be looking to do the same thing um what do you think about people who are hiring um those in leadership positions that are hiring software engineers should know especially when they're thinking about others from people from other countries you know because we're thinking about talking about cultural similarities talking about differences I think having um, that awareness and that practice of saying, how can I do better and what do I need to think about and what are questions I should be considering are really important. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's an interesting um, one. I would say that, um, I mean, remote is a thing now and I mean, a company, most companies are definitely um, considering remote because they, they've now realized that remote, um, working remotely, opens them to um, in a pool of um, talent from across the world globally. And that's something um, interestingly that Nigerians, uh, Africans are also beginning to wake up to because they are beginning to realize that the, the competition for talent is no longer the next company, you know, down the street or down the road. It's now like another company in a different continent altogether. So they are also beginning to wake up to, to you know, what, you know, working remotely i mean actually means and why they should probably embrace it and why um they should begin to you know offer better benefits to keep their talents right and you know um for iron professionals right um generally i'm, I'm, I'm going to speak more to engineers because i've been, been an engineer right but generally um i feel like there are different engineers at you know different levels right and because of the different there's so many skills in, in, in software engineering that you know it's it's it can become increasingly difficult for um professionals to find the person that like has the experience of the exact skills that they are looking for, right? Which can um, sometimes cause a strain, right? Um, in finding talent. And what I found that most um innovative um and professionals are beginning to look out for are engineers with um good problem solving skills who are curious and have a good mindset irrespective of but not like like irrespective of whether they have the 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 like skill that is a programming language or the necessary skills that they 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 use because they they, they found that a lot of times engineers you know we we learn on the job we are skill on the job so when you have someone who you know already who, who, who likes who can problem solve and you know as a group mindset and willing to learn through and through. You know, when you ask someone like that, it's easy for the person to um to learn and you know upskill as to 
in whatever skill that they need to they need to learn. Um, so being, I mean, focusing more on the ability for the engineer to learn and skill up, skill on the job. Like I said, you know, as long as the engineer is curious enough to learn new technologies and constantly developing oneself, he or she would definitely be an asset to anything, any team really. And it's um, also important that I mean, aside from you know. Um, technical abilities and all of that. It's important that the engineer is, you know, also team oriented and seeks collaboration. Because a lot of times um engineers have to work in teams, right? We don't work in isolation because we um we have engineers with different, like I said, engineering field is one with very diverse skills. So you often found you know engineers with different skills forming a team together and working together to build a product. So it's really I mean you it's right you can overemphasize um the skill i mean the team i mean the engineer being a team player because when the engineer you know an engineer with really really good skills that is not a team player might not be you know the perfect fit for an organization so yeah and it goes both ways like i said you know companies um engineers are equally looking for you know companies you know that has this um you know this culture that has built in some of those things that would help them also to thrive in their professional development and in their um like yeah, in their professional um, yeah journey, basically. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. I think curiosity, right, desire to learn. Um, you know, I I agree. Like skill set, you know, is important, but you learn just like same same for law. You don't go to law school and learn how to practice law. You actually learn how to practice law practicing law, right? And I think we we take that perspective. It's the practice of doing what we do and really staying curious and and elevating our opportunity to be creative um, is important. And that teamwork part, which law has got to get better. So I love hearing that because for those that are like me, that maybe that aren't engineers that are looking to come into the space, there might be some some thoughts around how they can use some of that same um, some of your same examples and thoughts on how they can transition too. Yeah, and, and and just to add, I mean a bit more. I, I think that um, like since a lot of companies that are transitioning to to remote, diving more on some of the things that are needed for when I you know looking for this like I said, you know, communicating and collaborating effectively. Then also a lot of times the engineers also like looking out for where like an engineer that can also work independently because a lot of times you know aside from times when um the the, the uh, like team is is on course and all that a lot of times the engineer is working solo right from like the part of the world that they are they, they are at so ability for the engineer to work independently and you know get results and also having a strong sense of accountability so that you know because all of the skills make things seamless and and all of that and of course you know and i mean iron engineers sorry iron professionals right when they are iron i think it would make sense that the team members are um, the time zones where they reside in shouldn't be too far from each other. Maybe, for example, at least there should be a time, right, when they are that time where they can collaborate. For example, let's say they have like um, like a three to four hours overlap where it's easy for them to have meetings and collaborate on any work necessary. I think I think this this is definitely something to look out for in when forming the teams, you know, especially remote teams, right? Um, yeah, so for that, I think that's you know, yeah. I was yeah, just going to add that. Go, to go for that, it, you know, <laughs> yeah. For that, you know, foster those things that helps um, physical teams um, to be successful. Yeah, I love that. I, I think you know, 
in 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 my journey, I will say, you know, those same qualities are are important and even a part of the reason why, you know, I decided to say yes when asked to being a co-founder, right? Because I want to stay curious, I want to be creative, but I also want to work with someone that wants to be collaborative, particularly in industries that, you know, um, need to embrace more of that, right? As we're looking to, I mean, everything touches tech. Like, like the law touches everything. And that oh, yeah. means the impact that we each have is, is tenfold. It's beyond our, our imagination. So wanting to be able to have that, those same, those same skills that when someone's thinking to hire is I believe the same things that led me to become a tech founder, right? That, um, that I would say if someone is interested in, in thinking about, you know, you know, leveraging their expertise outside of what they're doing to come into this field or to to be, to start a startup. It's it's those type of things, right? Creativity, curiosity, um, collaboration, and to know that you know you're better doing it together because of the same things. Like in a global economy, talent is everywhere. And before we all thought, well, I'm just gonna. Not, not to say we all thought, but I think, you know, definitely United States, I will say there was a lot of like, we'll focus working on the United States when there, when talent exists everywhere. And, and when we know when we have more, more voices, more diverse voices, more diverse experiences, what, what, what gets built is better, what, what the impact is greater. And so I will say all those things, thinking about the impact that I can have at scale, being a tech founder are all pieces for me, similar to you. And similar to what the suggestions you were saying about, you know, those hiring or looking to come into um, this space, you know, always are looking to consider. So, yeah, that's an absolute. Um, that that's an um, that's a really good um, comment because I, you know, I was going to ask, you know, what what I mean, one I mean, you being a startup um, founder, right? What one should look out for? Um, but I can see you already touched a, a bit on that. So I'm going to also ask, you know, what you know, what do you think, you know, startup should I mean? A startup should look out for when like when they want to go into funding when they want to fund like what are the things that um what are the things um they should look out for really yeah i would say you know one of the things that we think about is like you know what's our exit strategy like funding is a part of your growth trajectory and some some people have really strong feelings on do you self-fund meaning you know you're you're putting in the equity you're putting in the time you're bringing in others who can support you that collaboration piece or do you go after um those that can help you by in injecting a lot of money to scale you faster. And I don't think there's a wrong or right answer. I think it's really just thinking about what makes sense for you, right? What, what makes sense for the business? What type of impact do you want to have? I do believe there's always more power when you're, when you're, when there's more people at the table, right? When there's more people doing the work. So um, just, just go deep and ask yourselves, you know, how do I want, how do I want to grow? Um, you know, how do I want my impact to be, can I do this on my own? Do I have the, 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 the time, the energy, the resources to do that? And if not, then consider what funding looks like and consider what my, what your ownership you're willing to let go to bring someone in. I think all those are questions and considerations. I know it's something that, that we talk about, um, as a, as a co-founder of, of my tech platform, um, like, you know, the pros and cons of that and, and how we want to grow. But I think it's an it's a, it's a way of growth. It's not the only way. And so making sure it aligns with how you're showing up and giving yourself the space to change your answer too, right? Um, the, the lawyer in me will say, you know, be a little thoughtful on like how you structure your business because that can be impactful. But outside of that, make a decision, move forward imperfectly, and then give yourself the grace to change if, if circumstances change, because that's just the reality of 
building for me, building a tech platform, that's the reality of just, you know, practicing as a lawyer. That's just the reality of living life. I mean, I don't think any of us knew what life would be like a little over two years ago, you know, and as yeah. someone like you, Tammy, who's worked virtual, I've, my, my law practices, you know, meet me practicing law. Yeah. Okay. So for practicing law, I've always basically worked in a virtual space. Um, it still was different when the pandemic hit. It was, it's still been a different experience. And so, you know, we have to give ourselves the grace to, to, to adjust. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally love um, how you shared that, you know, a lot of, um, funding isn't the only way to grow. And I think I, I've loved um, some startups who not only look for um, funding, like from just people who are willing to bring the money, but people who are also interested in the progress and the you know, development of the business, who not only bring, um, you know, the money, but also bring their expertise in helping the, you know, startup grow to, you know, I mean, these are people that, you know, venture capitalists and generally mostly people that, you know, have also have some experience building some other companies, right, and they bring that expertise in also um, helping the company grow, and I think those are the best, um, you know, ways to really take advantage of, you know, those situations, not just the money, but also the expertise of the um, funders. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, resources are are important. And whether you are, you know, want to go into an organization or start your own, you being well resourced is an important part of that, right? Through your development, through the people who are supporting you, whether that's mentors, whether that's investors, whether that's leaders in your organization, whether that's your family, your friends, like being well resourced and supported around your well-being, like all that is really important. And I will say, as a black woman in tech, I also recognize that, you know, I think there's multiple hats. I recognize I'm one of the few that hold a chief legal officer position. I'm one of the few that, you know, is a black legal tech founder at that or a black tech founder. And so just having the, the space to to go through that journey and to have the resources to support you when things are amazing and when things get tough too, right? And so um, I think all of that is 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 important. So yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed this this conversation. I mean, Absolutely. it's been amazing talking with you. I feel like you know, it's it's we could see each other in the work environment, but it's so different just like just having this yeah. chat. So I, I really hope yeah. others that everyone that's listening is, has enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed being a participant in it. Um, so let's end with a pro tip. What advice would you give software engineers as they're looking to like continue down their journey of, of growth and development? Yeah, um, yeah, um, I, I would say that I, I see that a lot of engineers are beginning to um, embrace the, the more culture um, even much more. and. Of course, that that um, like they are beginning to look out for more remote opportunities. Actually, you know, engineers here in Africa as well looking to you know work in the global space, which is an interesting one. Um, so yeah, my advice would be um, yeah, while searching for those companies that you want to work with, understand that you are of great value. So definitely um, don't just look out for company that like with the big box that are willing to offer the big box, but also that that would help you. Um, thrive in your professional career and also um you know help you achieve your dreams of, of, of and of course as well with a good culture and um i don't want to use the word balance like you said because you don't think what i mean I, i'm so used to using that word for so long that I, yeah i would also like the one that would also help you um you know also help you achieve the other things that you want to achieve and not just in your career like you know the one that helps you to create that i'm not going to use the word but i would have to the, the, that would have to create the the balance that you need. <laughs> so please bear with me. 
It's all right. You know, it's all good. Um, I would say as someone who I think has been disruptive in my industry and um, has operated that way, this having a global, um, a, a truly global economy, truly where, where you can work anywhere, work for co companies from anywhere, you know, what, as we are embracing these next stages, the reality is much of what was built didn't have the diversity, the inclusion that was needed to build the things, right? Whether that's building the law or building the tech. And so my thought would be whether you're an engineer, I'm not an engineer, or if you're someone that is not in that space, but coming into tech space or becoming a tech, tech founder, I would say, you know, don't be afraid to learn. Well, first learn how things operate and then don't be yeah. afraid to break the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. Meaning, all yeah, 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 right? Because here's the thing. Things weren't always built with all the voices, with, with all the experiences. And this is the opportunity to now, once you learn how it was built to say, but what if we did it different? What, it would, mm -hmm. what, what would it look like if instead of us doing it this way, from my experience, I could do it another way. And, and I'll just give a quick example just from growing up. You know, I'm, from, I'm a New Yorker and um, in New York, we always had dollar caps, right? It was always a thing you could, and a dollar cab, basically it was, it did the same like route as a bus route. And you would pay a dollar to go into a cab that you shared with three or four people. It could sit, you could sit five people, the driver is sitting, and then there's three, four other seats. Fast forward today, what does that sound like? Sounds pretty familiar, right? But that existed growing up. And I think the reality is we have a lot of experience we can share. So if I had a pro tip is learn it and then don't be afraid to break the status quo. Absolutely, absolutely. I totally, totally love that. I, I mean, I think that's been my mantra as well, which is, I mean, which has helped me um, be where I am today. And I think everyone should definitely embrace that. You know, do not be afraid to, to speak up, you know, to speak out, to break the status quo and also shatter the ceilings when necessary. Like, yeah, we want more, more women at the top, like, like um, Kim and, you know, many more women um, doing, you know, big things and, you know, introducing uh, new stuff to, to, to tech. As well as you, Tammy. <laughs> absolutely absolutely it's been it's been really nice um having this conversation thank you so much for the yeah for the beautiful it's, it's been really nice um finding a lot of things that we shared in common and you know knowing you know a lot more about you yes yeah well i hope you enjoyed it all those that are listening this conversation and feel inspired by um by this and during black history month um as we shared our journeys and and even uh, as we continue to work, walk on those journeys right now so Subscribe to our podcast, check out our YouTube channel for more Black History Month content and technical and career related videos. In the Women Who Code Career Nav segment of our show, you'll hear real world advice from people who are currently working in the technology industry and personally know the steps needed to succeed. These talks will include both career advice as well as a look at the industry itself and its practices. On this week's Career Nav segment of our podcast, we have Diamond Purvis, an application developer at IBM, discussing how to build a network on Twitter and advocate for yourself. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Kate Sarazen, and I'm a senior content manager at Omni Code. And today we have Diamond here with us. Diamond, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Definitely. And so Diamond, you're an application developer at IBM, even apprenticeship, is that correct? Yes, yes I am. Mm -hmm. Very cool. 
Um, and I saw that on your LinkedIn profile, you talked about how um, who knew a hobby could turn into something bigger and you were actually in marketing before, which is uh, actually the same as my career trajectory. I started in uh, marketing got into tech. Um, and with that, uh, especially like being online, um, how have you been able to build a network of advocates, supporters in your career? And how has that helped you in your success professionally? Um, honestly, I would say uh, Twitter has been a huge resource um, through Twitter is how I found Women Who Code. Like I'm on the Discord with Women Who Code. It's also how I found the Women Who Code website. And it's also how I found uh, individuals who are kind of um, who were transitioning into IT as well and who are already seniors. So they, you know, they were giving me information and, and tips and things that I could probably learn or do to even get me into that space to be at IBM now. And within IBM, you know, from learning from what others would say, um, I've been been reaching out, you know, like, hey, this is something I'm interested in. I see that you do this. Um, do you mind having a chit chat with me to kind of, you know, get information on what's going on over there and if I can do it too, especially with it being uh, the pandemic, you know, we're all online. So, and I started my apprenticeship online, you know, I didn't get to get, I didn't get to go to the office. so. Being able to really communicate and, you know, not being afraid to message someone and get help is what's really helped me as well. Very cool. And that's one of the differences I've noticed versus like the tech industry versus under industries is that Twitter is like a professional network for tech. <laughs> it's strange because everyone else uses LinkedIn. Um, mm -hmm. So was that, was that a transition for you, like moving to like Twitter and like, did it make you think differently about like Twitter as a platform? Um, it did because, uh, at, at the time, I used Twitter to kind of like, you know, it was kind of my troll account. <laughs> and then I had to clean it, I had to clean it up. <laughs> and, um, you know, get, uh, I, I still troll a little bit, but it's a little bit more professional now as well, so that, you know, I can still get information and get insight. And, you know, others come to me for help now as well, because they want to be where I am. And I'm like, oh, I don't feel important, but I guess I am. <laughs> So it's, it's really been a big difference because uh, I remember in college, I went to school for marketing and, um, you know, LinkedIn was the only use LinkedIn. Don't use social media because it's unprofessional and it's kind of flipped now. So that's cool, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely, <laughs> uh, definitely a different way of networking online. Um, and with that, you mentioned like you did that you did the career condition and then now people are coming to you for um, for advice. Have you dealt with like being in a new space? Have you dealt with imposter syndrome before or had any other barriers to, to building your career in tech? Yes, so I have. And the funny thing about that is when I, when I feel it, I immediately go to Twitter because that was my troll account. <laughs> and I posted on Twitter and I have people messaging me like, you know, hey, you know, you shouldn't be feeling like you don't belong. This is where you are. You know, and I, not everyone moves at a super genius speed like this is a learning process you kind of have to re-engineer your mind and then you know me, me also having uh, women in the space that I'm in at work I can message them and they're like no hop on a call right now and I'm like oh okay this is different because I didn't experience that before until I got into I don't know if it's something that's specific to tech or that's something that's being implemented now but it's a huge help and I really like that because it, you know, there was times I was like, I don't think this is for me. And they're like, no, let's walk through this with you. And they'll be on a call with me for like an hour, um, whether it be someone from Twitter or someone from work, you know, walking me through. And I'm like, okay, this is for me. <laughs> Everyone's super helpful. So 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I haven't seen that in other in the marketing industry. There's not that like camaraderie or so. Um, mm-hmm. That's just because it's kind of difficult to be a woman in tech, so people band together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that might be it too, because <laughs> there's not many women in tech as at all. So as soon as they see you come in, they're like, "Hey, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go join a group." <laughs> so that's cool too. I like that. Definitely. Has it been, have you been in spaces a lot of times when you're the only, only woman, only um, person of color? And has that been um, challenging or have you been able to find that support in those spaces too? Yeah. So before I um, got my apprenticeship with IBM, I was kind of everywhere trying to get my face seen. I was at, you know, conferences. You guys actually sponsored me to go to a a Google Women in Tech conference in Atlanta. So I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Um, And a few other conferences and um, uh, what is it called? Uh, Hack, 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 Hack X, I think it's Hack X. Um, I've seen myself there and, you know, being sometimes being the only uh, woman of color and then being only woman, you know, I'm walking in the room and as soon as I walk in the room, you know, people are, you know, staring at me like, you know, have, they have a look on their face like, what are you doing here? And, <laughs> And, you know, I'm, I'm not small, like I'm very tall, I'm 5'10", and I have, my hair is tamed right now, but it's usually huge. So, you know, I'm coming in and they're like, what is happening? You don't even look like you're, you're, you're not even dressed like us, because I'm, I usually have like a whole bunch of colors on. And, you know, <laughs> coming from the marketing space, you know, this, they're very loud. So, <laughs> um, and it's, it's interesting, too, because, you know, I walk in and I'm like, oh, what's happening? And then, once I start talking, I'm like, ah, I don't care about you. I'm important. You know, I'm amazing. I'm fabulous. So I don't know what you have going on, but I'm different. So <laughs> like, I kind of psych myself, not psych myself. I kind of give myself like a pep talk within like those first two minutes. Like, okay, you got this. Um, you're here. So, you know, let's keep it moving. You got this invite or you got this um, uh, ticket to come in here. So, you know, use it. So it's kind of how I've been <laughs> looking at it. Yeah, because it can be so difficult to, to feel like mm-hmm. where you don't see anyone that looks like you and you have people staring at you and that's something to like do that self-talk. Our, um, our community really struggles with that. So I think that'll be really helpful. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Um, is there anyone in, um, in, in history or another woman in tech that has inspired your career? Yes, so... It's actually funny. So um, I, I think it was about like three months ago. So when I was when I was younger, I wanted to do like space stuff. But I thought it was like super cool. And then like as I got older, you like from people, teachers and stuff, they're like, oh, you know, you need to lower your dream a little bit. You know, that's kind of far reached. So I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't do that stuff. And uh, I always thought astronauts were cool. And it's funny because I did, actually did a project on, um, I, I can't think of her name at the moment, but I did a project on her. It was like a web development project. And I tweeted it when I did it. And, you know, I didn't think that she would see it. And like, I think a week later, she had, um, she actually liked the message, retweeted it, and then she followed me. And I was like, I feel so cool right now. I have a, a whole astronaut following me. <laughs> I thought it was so, so, so cool, but um, things of that nature, I don't really see a lot of women in those roles. And then I don't see a lot of women of color in those roles either. So it kind of like 
it's kind of like a, you know, I see the goal. It doesn't feel reachable, but I know it, it's possible because someone else has already done it. But at the same time, there's there's like there's not that that ground roots to help you get to where that person might have been. So you're kind of like, uh, well, maybe if I Google, I can figure it out. But, you know, Google's not really helping me. So then you kind of go into, you know, spaces that you don't really want to be in and your your mind is still like, oh, I still want to do that. So there's that as well. But I've always looked at women who are doing amazing things and I'm like, ah, I wish I could do that. I wonder how they're doing that. And me switching over to tech, that was kind of my, okay, it's time. <laughs> it's time to try. And it's been working so far. So that's cool. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I think what you're saying is really important and powerful in terms of being able to see someone that looks like you, that's had a similar experience, done it before, to know like, oh, I can, I can do that. And um, I don't think we always uh, think about how important that is, especially in tech. Yeah. Do you have any um, advice for other women in tech? Um, honestly, my advice would be to, uh, I know everyone says this, but like, you know, ask questions. <laughs> And reach out to as many people as you can. If you if you see them doing something that's remotely related to what you want to do, or maybe it's not related, but it can apply to what you want to do, shoot them a message because you never know who might respond back to you. You just never know. And I've had so many people respond back to me that I thought, you know, they didn't have time or they probably have a lot of things going on and they took the time out to respond back to me. So never feel like you can't ask someone a question. And if you see opportunities, don't think that, you know, you're not qualified or you don't feel like you don't, you don't feel like you have the skills to apply for it. Apply for it anyway. I didn't feel like I had the skills for the IBM apprenticeship. And I was like, <laughs> I'm going to apply anyway. <laughs> and, you know, build some projects and stuff, you know, and shoot my, you know, shoot my shot. And it actually, it actually ended up working out. Um, even with my interview, it was supposed to be like 30 minutes. It was an hour because the conversation was just so great. So it's always take that chance. You just never know. If I hadn't taken that chance, I would still probably be in my marketing job that I didn't like. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you, thank you so much for sharing all that, Diamond. Um, where can people find you? Um, so I'm on Twitter, um, Engineered Curls with a Z. And then I'm on I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Diamond Purvis, Diamond Purvis Jorsling. That's the easiest way to find me. Um, and I'm also on um, I'm on YouTube, but there's not much on there. But same same handle, Engineered Curls with a Z. And um, those are all my handles. Women Who Code Talks Tech is a segment that features experts in a specific field of technology sharing their knowledge on an in-depth and highly technical subject. These talks are designed to both introduce advanced subjects and provide insight into the work being done in these fields. In Women Who Code Talks Tech, we're featuring Alex Mitchell, a software engineer at Procter & Gamble, and Sierra O'Brien, a Woman Who Code Fellow and Senior Consultant at Atomic Robot. They're talking about using Jetpack Compose to get started developing for Android. 
Hello, everyone, um, and thanks for coming to our session um, and joining us from wherever you are in the world. We're so happy to be here today with the Women Who Code community and to talk about how to get started and also why everyone can get started with Android using Jetpack Compose. So I hear this a lot, that it's really hard to learn or to transition into mobile. And it's actually gotten a lot harder over the last couple of years as the platform becomes more complicated and complex. There are a lot of reasons for this, but some of the main ones that Alex and I came up with were that um, programming for mobile is a totally different paradigm and has different architectures and patterns than some of the other stacks. Deployment for your changes on mobile is really different than deploying changes to a website. And you're also developing for a really small device with a very small little operating system that you've probably never worked with before for any of your other projects. In addition, for most people, it means learning a new language. And sometimes in the case of Android, it might mean learning two new languages. And then for Android specifically, you're dealing with a huge number of devices that can, great, can vary greatly in performance and screen size. And because Android is open source, each can have a slightly different operating system running. And so you have to learn how to deal with those quirks and weirdness around that. We also have to worry about things like life cycles, fragments and activities, and the difference between all of these at the same time. So the deck is stacked for you when trying to transition to Android development. Jetpack Compose will make it easier to get started with Android. And during our talk, we'll show you how. So we'll get started by introducing ourselves and explaining to you what kind of backgrounds we bring to the table when we're talking about Jetpack Compose. My name is Sierra and I'm a longtime Android engineer, but a first time Jetpack Compose engineer. Android was actually my first role in tech and I liked it so much that I decided to stick around this whole time. And so I bring that perspective of traditional Android development. I've gone through a lot of changes in Android over the years. I've gone from model view controller MVC to model view view model MVVM. I've worked on projects that have multiple activities and I've worked on projects that have multiple X fragments. And also midway in my career, I had to transition from Java to Kotlin. And now I'm going from the imperative paradigm to declarative. For those of you who might know a little bit about Android development, I'm a huge fan of XML and building custom views. And so learning this new framework was a really big mental shift for me as we move away from those. And my name is Alex. I'm a longtime front-end engineer and short-time Android engineer. I've worked with React and currently worked with Shopify and vanilla JavaScript. I'm coming to Android from a web perspective and learning Jetpack Compose as well. I face different challenges in learning Compose, um, given that my frame of reference for Android development isn't as large. So we're both learning Jetpack Compose and bringing really different experiences and backgrounds. And over the next 30 minutes, we'll bridge these backgrounds to give a holistic perspective of getting started with Jetpack Compose. So we've mentioned a couple of high-level features of Jetpack Compose in our introductions, but let's dive into some of the specifics and backgrounds of this new framework. Cool. So Jetpack Compose is Android's modern toolkit for building native UIs. It allows you to build better apps faster. At a high level, how does it allow us to do that? So first, you can do more with less code. It has even less boilerplate than traditional Android. So you're able to avoid entire classes and layout files. So your code is simpler and easier to read and maintain. 
With less code, it also means you can potentially get started faster and contribute quicker. And finally, less code equals less bugs. Bugs can't grow from white space. Second, it's more intuitive and traditional than traditional Android. You just describe your UI and control, Compose takes care of the rest. As app state changes, your UI automatically updates. It also allows you to accelerate development. It's compatible with all your existing code so you can adopt it when and where you want. Being able to iterate fast with live previews and full Android Studio support makes something that is often challenging into a delightful experience. And last but not least, Jetpack Compose is powerful. You can create beautiful apps with direct access to Android's platform APIs and built-in support for material design, theming, animations, and more. So let's dive a little bit deeper into what and what to what does modern native toolkit mean? So first, um, it's a declarative framework built by Google specifically for the Android operating system. Um, so we talked a little bit about how I'm switching from an imperative framework to a declarative framework. Historically, our Android UI framework was an imperative framework. The formal definition of imperative programming is a paradigm of using statements and commands to change a program state. It involves having a separate model of the application's UI. Um, a declarative design focuses on the how of the app rather than the what. The example in Android is that we we traditionally use XML layouts to, cre to create our views. We design the widgets and components, which are then rendered for the user to see and interact with. An Android view hierarchy has been represented as a tree of UI widgets. And as the state of the app changes because of things like user interactions or data updates, the UI hierarchy needs to be updated to display the current data. We did this by calling things like set property. Manipulating views Manipulating views manually increases the likelihood of errors. Now we think about our declarative framework in describing our UI in, a, in an intuitive way. Formally, imperative programming is a paradigm that expresses the logic of computation without describing its control flow. In contrast to imperative programming, declarative program, in declarative programming, we tell our application what it should do and look like in different states, and then the app itself handles moving between those states. This pattern allows developers to design the user interface based on the data received. This, on the other hand, focuses on the what of the app. And this design paradox also makes use of one programming language to make create the entire app. Jetpack Compose uses Kotlin all the time. So it's all Kotlin all the time. And because we don't have to rely on XML to create our layouts, our apps are able to be just as dynamic as any other Kotlin code. For example, suppose we want to build a UI that greets a list of users. With Compose, all we would need to do is create a for loop and our list of names and insert the name as a parameter in the desired text composable to generate a greeting for each user. Although this is a simple example, composable functions can be quite sophisticated. You can use if statements to decide if you want to show a particular UI element, use loops, and call helper functions because you, you have the full flexibility of the underlying language. This power and flexibility is one of the key advantages of Jetpack Compose. And finally, it is in fact so modern that Jetpack Compose is still in beta, 
but a stable version of Jetpack Compose 1.0 is set to be officially released in July. And so Android joins the future of programming um, because we've seen this shift from imperative frameworks to imperative, from imperative frameworks to declarative paradigms across mobile development. iOS development is moving towards Swift UI, a declarative, a native declarative UI framework written in Swift for iOS apps. And we also have things like Flutter, a cross-platform UI framework for developing Android and iOS at the same time. Um, my first web framework was React, and it's also a declarative JavaScript framework. Um, Ionic is another declarative framework for building apps with JavaScript. So this trend is not just in mobile, it's in web as well. Having an understanding of the declarative paradigm is a transferable skill. Knowing a little bit about React or Swift UI or any other declarative framework is going to make it easier to get started learning Jetpack Compose. Similarly, knowing a little bit about Jetpack Compose is going to make it easier to get started with the others. So now let's see it in action. I always tell everyone who wants to get started with Android that a really good starting place is to use the basics and build an app that displays a list of data and also has a view to display some details. That's actually the first project that Alex and I worked on together when she was just getting started. And so learning Jetpack Compose is a new framework for me and Alex to both learn. And so we're a good place to start is going back to the basics and building an app that displays a list of data and shows some details. And instead of building the classic Hello World app, we'll stay on theme with our Jetpack Compose libraries and build a Hello Mars app. Each declarative framework has their own way of defining or creating a piece of UI. For React, it's a component, and for Jetpack Compose, it's a composable. Think of, think of a composable as one of the building blocks of your screen. A composable is a function that uses the at composable notation to let Kotlin know that you are creating UI components. It also tells Compose to add support to the function for updating and maintaining your UI over time. It's a pure function, which means that given the same inputs, it will produce the same outputs. It has no return value, and it emits your UI instead of returning a view. Since composables are functions, you can pass in parameters, and you can call other composable functions from within your composable. To the right, we have a simple example of a greeting composable that emits the Hello Mars text to a screen. Looking from a traditional Android lens, it would be a lot of work to even display this Hello Mars. This single composable replaces an entire XML file and layout that would need to be inflated in a fragment or activity. So now let's look at our details screen to get a feel for thinking in Compose and deciding how we could structure our composable functions to create a screen. We can look at this entire screen as a composable, as well as the image and the three lines of text could be composables as well. With Compose, you can make your UI as nested as your heart desires. The one caveat is that using a lot of components, well, composables and nesting in your screen um, will affect the readability of your code. So you should use it wisely. Now let's jump into the actual code. Thinking back to linear layout from traditional Android development, it allows you to lay out items on a screen with orientation, be it vertical or horizontal. 
Within Jetpack and Pose, we have column and row. Column is like a linear layout with vertical orientation, and row is a linear layout with horizontal orientation. Both allow you to lay out composables on a screen very easily by allowing you to set the alignment and arrangement properties for items within them. Coming from a front end background, it's very similar to Flexbox um, with being able to align and justify items along different axes. Box, on the other hand, is similar to frame layout. It helps you to, to display children relative to their parents' edges. By default, composables will stack in the top left along the Z axis. So wrapping and wrapping composables in one of these layout elements will stop this stacking. Column, row, and box are the most basic building blocks that we can use to build complex layouts. And lists are made simpler with Compose as well. On our previous slide, we talked about column and we used it to lay out our photo details composable. Now we'll use column as the building block of our photo list composable. When we look at the meat of this, um, we see that we're using Kotlin's for each index to loop through the contents of our list and place one photo item composable on the screen for each item in our list. This is an example of how we can use the underlying language features of Kotlin to quickly build UIs. We know column allows the item to flow vertically. However, we have more items than can fit the screen at once. So we need to add scroll behavior. To do this, we'll need to add a vertical scroll modifier. Row has a similar property um, for horizontal scrolling. Sierra will talk about modifiers next, so I won't go into detail. Um, but for now, just know that this modifier adds the scroll behavior that we need. To do this, we'll need to add, oh. <laughs> using column or row, um, while looping through a list of data can be expensive, especially if you have a long list of items to show or data that changes. This is because solutions like this render all of the items in the list at once. If you've worked with Android for many moons like I have, this may remind you of the performance issues that we had when using the list view widget. This was solved in traditional Android development using a recycler view. So what do we do in Compose to handle situations like this, you may be thinking. Never fear. Compose has lazy column and lazy row, which, um, oh, which not only composes, which, sorry. <laughs> which composes and lays out the items that are visible. Um, as you scroll, new items are composed and old elements are disposed. Lazy column only lays out items which are visible on screen, similar to Recycler View. Lazy column doesn't recycle its children like Recycler View, though. It emits new composables as you scroll through it, and it's still performant because uh, emitting composables is relatively cheap compared to instantiating Android views. And its impl implementation is much simpler and more intuitive than setting up a recycler view. Um, and recycler views, if you remember them, they were very exhausting um, com and cumbersome. Um, they required an adapter, view holder, and a layout um, to place it in. Um, it was a lot to remember and required a lot of boilerplate. Now, if we look at our code, we see that we've replaced column with lazy column. Lazy column has scroll behavior built in, so we no longer need our vertical scroll modifier. And instead of using our for each function, 
we use the inline items function that takes in our list and Lambda function to loop through and display our photo items. So Alex has given us a great foundation to start building out our UI using composables, but our app isn't the prettiest app in the solar system. So how do we start customizing our app in Jetpack Compose? Answer, we'll use modifiers. Andrew, Alex has already given us a sneak peek of modifiers when talking about implementing scroll behavior in a column composable, but let's look at some of the other things that modifiers can also do for us. Modifiers tell a UI element how to lay out, display, or behave within its parent layout. You can, you can also say that they decorate or add behavior to UI elements. They can control things like the size of your element. You can use them to set the height and width, similar to using layout height and layout width in XML attributes. And you can also use them to set the mins and maxes for those height and width. You can also use modifiers to control the shape and color of your UI and set backgrounds. So there's no need to create custom drawables and set those in XML. You can also use them to add padding and elevation. And if you worked it with Android and ever tried to add elevation to a custom view with an interesting shape, you know that that was very difficult. And finally, you can use them to control things like scroll behavior and also add, thing, add clickability to your views and set things like your on-focus listeners. So let's look a little deeper into what we and how we are going to use these modifiers. Most composables take in a modifier as an argument of the composable function. It's a good practice to build your own reusable components to also include a modifier argument for ease of customization in the future. When we look at the image composable that we're using for both the details screen and our list, we see that the modifier is the third argument. We also see that there are two required arguments for our image composable, the painter, which is our image source, and the content description. Every, or at least most composables, have a mixture of required and optional arguments. The required arguments are going to be arguments that you need for that composable to make sense. For a text composable, this, might, this is going to be the text that you want to display with it. For an image composable, it's the image source. In a content view is one way that Jetpack Compose is encouraging developers to think about building accessible UIs. It turns out for um, composables that don't have a content description as an argument, the way to add those accessibility properties is through the semantics modifier. So it fits right in with our conversation with modifiers. The required arguments along with those optional arguments, and then all the things that we've talked about that you can do with modifiers are going to give you the ability to build out a UI with all the flexibility that we had with XML attributes and drawables and all the view properties. And so you will not be lacking customization. Different modifiers chain together, chain together to give you your final outcome. The order of the chain matters, and a different order might result in a different UI. We take our chained modifier and we pass that into our composable for our final result. So let's see it in action. We're going to take our app that Alex has so kindly built out for us and theme it like our presentation. So let's look at the code. So first, we're going to add some modifiers to our lazy column. By default, these basic composables that Alex talked to us about, like row and column, lazy column, are gonna, by default, wrap around their contents. You can think of this as the XML app attribute wrap content. 
we're going to add this fill next width modifier to our lazy column, which is similar to thinking about the layout, setting the layout width attribute to match parent and XML. Then we're going to make use of how easy it is to arrange our components in our column, like Alex mentioned earlier, and we're going to pass in an alignment of center horizontally. So now we have our column filling the screen and the contents are centered inside. Now we're going to jump and modify our image composable. We're going to pass in our required parameters for our painter as our image source and also add a meaningful content description. And then we're going to add some modifiers to make our app a little prettier. First, we want to add margins. Unfortunately, margins do not exist in Jetpack Compose. Instead, we have to take advantage of the ordering of our modifiers to use padding to act both as margins, which you can think of as space pushing away from your view, and as actual padding, which you can think of space pushing inside your view. So the first thing that we do to our image is add eight pixels of padding. This will be applied to all sides of our image, but you can also use the padding modifier to specify a specific side or a specific orientation. While it's hard to see, our image now has padding. Next, we're going to clip our image into a circular shape. And so we use, the, use clip and pass in a circle shape from Jetpack Compose. This is super convenient because we didn't have to make our own drawable to make this happen. No XML shapes were involved. So now all of our images are circles, which is great. Yay. Um, we want to give our image that green border that Alex and I used in our original intro slide. So the next thing that we're going to do is add a background. If we ran the app now, it wouldn't have changed at all. The reason for this is because when we apply that green background, it's going to be below our image, and the image is taking up the whole space that we have. So now it's time to use our padding modifier again, and this time we're going to use it to give us an actual padding effect and take this background and, and push, push in the image. And so we see that we're applying 12 pixels of padding again on all sides because we didn't specify a specific side to apply this on. So now we can see our green background, but what the heck happened to our image? It was a circle before. When you think about applying that clip modifier, it's not actually changing the shape of our image, but rather you're looking through a hole at your image. And so now that we've pushed our image inside our circle, it's obvious that it's still a square. But that's okay, we can easily fix this by applying, by clipping our image again, and we apply the circle modifier, apply the circle shape as our final modifier. And now our app looks great. So you may have noticed that our background magically changed, and we never talked about this while setting up modifiers. The background color is actually controlled by the theme of the app, and we can easily control this because our whole app is wrapped inside a theme composable. And that controls things like our background color um, and the primary and secondary colors that we use in our app. On the left-hand side, we see um, that we're setting our content and we see that my theme composable, where we set dark theme equal to true. And inside of that composable, we have my app and our main screen. On the right-hand side, we can look at this theme, my theme composable and we see that all it does is toggle between our light dark color palette and our light color palette and pass that into our entire material themed app. This gives us one single place where we can control our color palettes and our theming really easily. 
So we've built out um, our list view using the lazy column and we've built out the details screen. So how are we going to pull these together and keep track of changes within our app? We can use state. One of the key features of Compose is that it's reactive, which is to say it automatically updates in response to state changes. In our example, we're going to use state to keep track of which view we should be showing. So state allows us to update the data within a composable using a unidirectional data flow. An event will happen within our UI, say a user clicks a button, or in our, the case of our app, an image, that triggers the state, a change in state. And then those state changes are sent back down to emit that update to the UI. Just like within React, we use state for anything that we will need to, will need to be updated over time. We'll use mutable state of to declare a state variable. This declaration gives a composable mutable memory, meaning that it can be rewritten. Items that are hard-coded or not dynamic get written to the UI tree once and are never updated. We'll use the remember keyword to use the same state within each recomposition of our composables. State does present challenges, though, when we need to update different composables all based on the same piece of state. We'll want to use state hoisting to lift the state to the parent composable and then send a copy of the state through the nested composables as an argument. It's a similar idea to using props within React. This process allows those nested composables to be stateless, which in turn makes them easier to test. So this is a snippet of code from our main screen composable. First, we see that we have three state variables, one for our list that comes from our view model, one for a Boolean we use to toggle when to show the photo details composable, and another that we use to remember our selected photo. Next, we see that we have our photo list composable and our photo details composable. Our photo details sits behind an if condition that uses our show details state variable. This means that when show details is toggled to true, our photo details will be emitted to our display and otherwise it won't be added to our UI. Instead of declaring the show details and photo details state um, in our individual composables, we are declaring our state within the parent composable and passing them in to the nested composables. This is an example of state hoisting and it allows our photo list and photo details composables to be stateless. Whenever state changes, Compose will re-invoke all the composables that depend on that state and update your UI. This process is called recomposition. Okay, so what do you need to know about composables and recompositions? The first thing to note is that composable functions can execute in any order. This means that you can't guarantee one, compo one composable will run before another, and so each composable needs to be self-contained with access to the variables or state that it needs to render. This means that if you have two composables, say a top of screen composable and a bottom screen of composable, and the top of screen composable sets some global variable that you also need in the bottom screen composable, you can't guarantee that that value will be there even though um, top of screen composable is called first. Extending on that, not only can composable functions execute in any order, composable functions can also run in parallel. So they can, you can't even guarantee that they won't happen at the same time. Recomposition is also smart and optimistic. 
Recomposition starts whenever a composable thinks that a parameter of a composable might have changed. It, it means that it's uh, optimistic means that it expects that recomposition to finish before the parameters change again. If a parameter does change before the recomposition finishes, Compose might cancel this recomposition and restart with a new parameter. It's also smart that it looks only to recompose composables that it thinks it's changed. And so you have to watch for this when thinking about side effects. And finally, composable functions might run quite frequently. In some cases, a composable function might run for every frame of a UI animation. If the function performs expensive operations, like reading from device storage, it can cause the UI to lock up. We can avoid this by doing those expensive operations on a different thread, like the background thread, and then passing that data to the UI once it's ready to be rendered. And now we have our final product, which is a list and a details view. We can click on an image and the details view animates up to show its contents. It's also worth noting that we would not recommend using state to handle navigation in real life. While it was a really great example of how to declare and use state in our little app with only two screens, this would not be a scalable solution. And there is actually a Compose library, um, a Compose navigation library that makes handling navigation really easy. So um, wrapping up, we wanted to go over a few final reasons why we are so excited about Compose. Um, the first reason is integration. Integration is a big one and it can mean a lot of different things um, when it comes to Compose. The first thing is that while it's a great choice, if you're starting a new project, you can also add it to your app, to an app that you're already working on. You don't have to wait for a new project to get started with Compose. It can integrate and be added to projects you're already working on. Second, um, libraries. <laughs> There are many libraries that we in the Android community know and love and use consistently. And moving from traditional Android to Compose does not mean moving away from those libraries into all new libraries. In this project, we used Retrofit to make our network calls and we used Hilt for dependency injection. We also used a Compose version of the Coil library to handle our image loading. And finally, it can be integrated with architectures that we already use for mobile. This particular application was written using MVVM and the Android architecture view model. While we still have to see what the long-term best choice in architecture is when using Jetpack Compose, for now, we can use it with the things that we already know. So the second reason um, that we love Compose is that it's all Kotlin all the time. We've known we said this before, but we wanted to come back to it as we wrap up because Compose can be used in a lot of different places, which means that Kotlin can be too. A central theme of our talk is that learning Compose is easier than learning traditional Android, but it also means that in the process, you're learning Compose for everything. You can use Compose to write desktop apps and web UIs, and it actually integrates with React. So if you're not interested in mobile, you can use Compose for the web and never have to learn Android. And finally, we think it's a really great time to get started. Like we mentioned earlier, Jetpack Compose is brand new, and so we're all in this together, learning together. There's a lot of really great resources coming out every day and a community being built around it. And with that, we want to thank everyone for spending the last half an hour with us to learn about Compose. If you want to find Alex or I after, the, after this 
conference, you can find us on Twitter at underscore Sierra O'Brien and at underscore Alex Mitchell, or you can find a whole host of ways to get in touch with either of us on our websites, sroBrien.github.io or alexmitchell.com. We also wanted to share the resources that we used to put together this um, presentation in case you want to dive deeper into Compose and get started. We really recommend the Google Learning Pathways and Google Developer Docs for Jetpack Compose. They have pathways that lead you through um, code labs that can get you started with all these different aspects. And they also have a lot of documentation to help you start thinking in Compose and using this new mental model. We also really like the Ray Winderlich book um, Jetpack Composed by Tutorials, that you can um, build a Jetpack, an app from scratch using Jetpack Compose. You can also find our slides and this, the code for this example app online on my GitHub at github.com slash O'Brien slash Marge Rover Compose. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash womenwhocode. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.